0: Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein.
1: Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. And this episode, I have a very special guest who has been the top of the top of all the lawyers in the country because she was president um, of the American Bar Association, which is the um, premier governing organization of lawyers throughout the country and helping sets policy. And she is an attorney here in Atlanta, Georgia, with the firm of Baker Donaldson. And welcome, Linda
2: Klein. Good to see you again, BJ. It's It's, been a long time.
1: It's been a long time. And full disclosure to those listening, we've known each other for a very long time because I was a baby lawyer um, who was friends with an attorney at your firm. And I remember going over there and here was a woman who um, had a couple years ahead of me and was already having um, an impact um, and a you know, at that stage, my law class had a lot of women, but still women becoming partner, women really. Um, directing things was still in its early stages back then in 1987.
2: That's hard to believe. And I, I was only a few years ahead of you but uh, I guess in those days it did make a difference. It was a shorter time to partnership track and I recall I w- there were only 20 women in my law school class and that was only a few years before you. Were, although I didn't go to University of Georgia where you went I went to Washington, Washington and Lee. Lee. That's right in, in Virginia.
1: Yes. And um In addition to being president of the American Bar Association, you were actually the first female president of the State Bar of Georgia. That's correct. And just to become the first president, um, I mean, did you know already that you were going to go on this track and kind of break down some walls? Or did it just happen because you have a passion for law and it just was innate to you to be involved in in your career or a little of both? It's
2: funny that you should ask that question because— the truth is, is I got involved in the bar association because I moved to Atlanta and didn't know anyone, and so I got involved in the bar association so I could make friends, and that's how I that's how I established my social relationships in town, and so uh, that's how I got involved in the bar. Uh, I was on the Atlanta Council of Younger Lawyers uh, at uh, board of directors, I guess they called it, and the chair uh, was handing out the jobs for what everyone on the board was going to be responsible for for the year and he had this job that was so boring nobody wanted because everybody wanted to plan the parties and stuff like that and when the most boring job came up no one would make eye contact with him we all looked down
1: (laughs) (laughs) it sounds like law school too (laughs) don't call on me
2: (laughs) well uh, then he said and Linda will and I was like oh goodness so I did the most boring job, the job that nobody wanted. I did it very well. And the fruits of my labor were published in the Atlanta Bar Journal, which was a a printed magazine in those days. Now it's electronic. And the chair of the state bar committee on that topic uh, saw the article and asked if it could be reprinted in the state bar journal. And then he decided not to run for his seat on the Board of Governors of the State Bar. And he called me and he said, I think you should offer for my seat on the Board of Governors of the State Bar of Georgia. And it never even occurred to me uh, that I would ever be on the Board of Governors.
1: And what's lovely is it's so nice an encouragement from a man who saw you and appreciated what you did at a time when, again... As you said, there just weren't that many lawyers in positions of leadership in law. There may be women lawyers, but hadn't reached the lead- leadership rank. So it's nice when that hand comes up and says, I'm, hey, I'm tapping on you. I want you to do
2: this. And what's very important is that we have to do that for other people. And that's something that I continue to try to do every day in my law practice and in in community service is to find future leaders and diversity is so important to the strength of decisions that are made either in a law firm, in a bar association, in any organization. Right. And it goes beyond law, which is, you know,
1: what we've talked about in some episodes here about, you know, in the workplace, no matter where it is, you do need, um, or it helps to have a little uh, guardian angel in that (laughs) particular area who, you know, says, I see you as in terms of what you can do and not look at the gender, not look at race or religion, the things that we talk about as lawyers that we do,
2: that um wasn't always the reflection of law. Oh, well, just as there were very few women lawyers, there were very few lawyers of color uh, in Georgia but when when I started practicing law. And that diversity is very important. And in bar activities, I got involved in uh, helping to start the uh, Georgia chapter of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association. Uh, I've been a member of GABWA, the Georgia Association of Black Women Attorneys, Gate City, the, the traditional um, African-American bar in Atlanta. Uh, f- of course, the Georgia Association for Women Lawyers. So there have been a lot of diverse bar associations uh, that I've been Try to be part of, try to make sure that diverse bar associations thrive and exist because it's very important.
1: And that same drive is part of why I invited you here because although all those things are benefits for lawyers, you chose your um, interests and passions as president of the American Bar Association to really benefit. Um, members of the public and their relation in law, and in particularly, I'm focusing first on your concern for veterans. Um, Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the work you did with um, veterans
2: um, and the American Bar Association? My passion has been access to justice. And as the first woman president of the State Bar of Georgia, we worked on access to justice to the indigent victims of domestic violence. And we were able to make the pie bigger, and maybe we can talk about that later, too. So veterans are a, another group of individuals who have many, many unique legal problems and don't get the access to the court system that they need. I'm focusing mostly on veterans who are, um, are can't afford lawyers. These are men and women who signed a piece of paper saying that they would die for our freedom And all Americans owe a duty of thanks uh, to veterans and to make sure that they get the help that they need. So I got interested in veterans' issues when our law firm started volunteering at a uh, homeless shelter. And I saw that in just a few minutes, a lawyer could make such a difference in someone's life. Uh, for example, uh, if a veteran gets an ID, then that might be a driver's license, which could be a job. It might be access to housing from the VA. Uh, certainly, medical treatment from the VA. And then I started hearing stories about how not having access to justice caused homelessness. And you think about how how could that be? But The studies from the VA show that six of the 10 top problems that lead to homelessness among veterans are legal problems. They need a lawyer to solve them. What might they be? Well, they might be um, uh, credit problems. In the old days, you'd hear that that every uh, young Army private got sold a car. Well, now they're sold a tattoo, and you can't repossess a tattoo. (laughs) And And they finance a tattoo? Yes, I never knew you could finance a tattoo, but you can. I I just learned something new. That, and and
1: it's enough. I guess the cost of the tattoo isn't is high, and then the interest rate is even higher, which elevates the ultimate price that they're paying.
2: I've seen veterans who have twenty thousand dollar (gasps) debts from tattoo parlors. You know these sleeves. Uh, you get yes. your whole arm tattooed. Yeah. Uh, and these are people who uh, make less money uh, than the poverty level. So an E1, E2 private might make $14,000, $15,000 a year. And you can't pay off a $20,000 debt wow. on that. Um, there are more problems than, than that. From multiple deployments come problems with keeping the family together. And so then there are family law problems. Uh, if Custody, get, divorce. Cu- oh, absolutely.
1: Um, making their child support payments, I'm sure. Because if, again, as you're talking about with the privates who are overseas, and the amount of money they have, that's not enough to take care of a family.
2: That's exactly right. Um, then, of course, there are benefits denials. Uh, there was an 82-year-old Korean War veteran who was told that the military lost his records, but he was totally disabled from his service in Korea. And for 60 years, he'd been told that he wasn't entitled to benefits. And he lived with his dog in an apartment, and he was evicted from the apartment that he had lived in for 30 years. And so he was living in his truck on the street with his dog, and his neighbors would bring him food. And one neighbor said, didn't you serve in Korea? Yes. Well, why aren't you getting VA benefits? Well, they lost my records. And that neighbor went to a legal services provider and a volunteer lawyer found within a couple of months got this veteran benefits, 60 years of back benefits. So he will now live the rest of his life comfortably. But that's just an example of how a lawyer uh, can make a difference between being homeless or not.
1: Wow. And I think you also had some invo- involvement and done some work with military spouses as well. Yes. What um, are the unique issues that the spouses
2: um, face legally that they need counsel? It's not the, the 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 issue I've been involved in. And of course, there are military spouse. Issues that are legal issues. And there are many of the same things that we talked about, family dissolution and and sometimes, uh, unfortunately, if if money is tight, uh, the veteran may wind up in the criminal justice system. We had a veteran who was stealing food to feed his family. And that's that's one issue where military spouses sometimes they're caring for um, a uh, disabled veteran, and and so there are multiple issues that military spouses face. But the but there's a unique issue that I've been focusing on, which is when a military spouse is a lawyer and moves from state to state because military people don't have a choice on where they live. The Department of Defense tells them.
1: Ah, uh, that's right. And it you have to take the bar or get license in every state you practice. Exactly. In. Oh, and, oh, that's like a nightmare because I just I'm happy in one state practicing and taking that one exam. I can't imagine.
2: And there are stories of military spouses that would take eight bar exams in five years because their husband ninety two percent of military spouse lawyers are women. And they wind up having to take all these bar exams. So several years ago, there's a great group called the Military Spouse JD Network, MSJDN, if anyone wants to look them up on the internet. And they said, we need a a waiver, a uniform waiver rule, that just for these unique issues where the military spouse hasn't been practicing long enough to wave into the bar, or maybe it's a state where you can't wave into the bar at all. And when you say wave into the bar, just for our listeners, so... You
1: know, there are requirements, and understandably, that when you practice law in a state that you have an awareness and knowledge and training with regard to the law of that state and their certification and exams. Sometimes if you've practiced long enough, you can ask the court to look at your practice and and allow you in. But that's also a lengthy process.
2: Yes, Um, and many states have uh, licensing waivers for people who are not lawyers doctors, dentists, physical therapists who move with their spouse. But lawyers, of course, are governed by the Supreme Court in Georgia and in most states. And so it's a different process. So the legislature can't just pass a law that says every lawyer who comes uh, with a spouse on military orders is automatically a member of the bar. So the Military Spouse J.D. Network, working with the American Bar Association, came up with a a model rule uh, about In this unique situation, the small number of women lawyers that are transferred uh, on military orders, because, of course, you want the family to stay together. Many of these are young women who have very high debt because it's expensive to go to four years of college and three years of law school. And then if you move to another state and you can't work, you can't pay your student loan back. So that's not good. And Georgia did adopt such a rule, not exactly the model rule, and we've been working to help a particular uh, lawyer uh, who was denied her waiver, and we're working with her, and hopefully her case will, will come through the Georgia Supreme Court very soon on appeal. Another, another example of lawyers'
1: You know, because everybody always thinks, you know, oh, you're only working your cases. You're only trying to make money and not realizing, you know, there's a lot of layers, you know. And when you need a lawyer, um, you have to have access to a lawyer. You have to have be able to reach that lawyer. And what you just mentioned ties in, again, to something else that you've been innovative and in working with. And that is making it possible for young lawyers to... Um, because law school is incredibly expensive. It's far more. I mean, when I went to law school, you know, it was a couple thousand dollars. It just, it was a bargain.
2: Well, you also went to a state school. I went to
1: a state school. Exactly. In fact, I had gone to a private school. and My parents were very relieved. <laughs> when I graduated college a year early, they were like, oh, wow, we saved that tuition that moves over to law school. Because I was fortunate that I had parents, you know, could, who could do that. But a lot of young people, particularly now, are this are using student loans. And yet their goal is to go to a job that is in the public service sector, which means you're not making enough money to be able to pay back those loans. And Linda Klein and I think the American Bar um, have been trying to do something about
2: it. So tell us about that. So the American Bar Association was involved during the uh, Bush 2 administration in passing public service loan forgiveness. And it's not just for lawyers. It There was a recognition in Congress at the time that uh, the cost of graduate education was very, very high. And because of that, it was uh, preventing people from taking public service jobs. So This could be teacher jobs, but we're talking about lawyers right now, uh, lawyer jobs like uh, working in the district attorney's office, as you did, or becoming a public defender. Uh, In the American Bar Association, we had a lot of lawyers who uh, were relying on public service loan forgiveness. So the way public service loan forgiveness works is that if for 10 years, 10 years, you work in a public interest job and you pay 10% of your salary toward your loan, at the end of 10 years, your loan will be forgiven. That's huge. Sounds easy enough. And because of the enormous cost of of graduate school, law school's three years, medical school's four years, uh, there are a lot of people whose loans doubled, their loan balance doubled in the 10 years that they were paying only 10% of their salary. Well, nine years into the program, several people who worked at the American Bar Association started getting letters from the Department of Education's contractor saying, you know how every year we've been sending you a letter saying you're certified? We take it all back. Why? They didn't give a reason. They just said that at the end of 10 years, we'll decide and we shouldn't have been sending you these letters. We, we tried to think about what it was and and why it was we have some thoughts that maybe not everybody was working for a 501c3 and um, that's a de- official charitable designation
1: correct it, well the code that you refer to so that you know for instance just so our listeners right you know you know when you give to a charity and you get the note saying it's tax deductible it's because it's a 501c3 organization officially recognized for doing charitable work and so
2: you would but, obviously need some proof. But not every charity is a 501c3. There are other – you know, we don't want to bore your listeners too much, but 501c6 is, is another type of nonprofit, that the, and that's what the American Bar Association is. But – The reason why public service loan forgiveness wasn't written so that you had to work at a 501c3 is that I don't want to say anything nasty about the Garden Club, but the Garden Club is a lovely charity, but we wouldn't necessarily think that that was a public service that we would want to necessarily forgive your loans if you worked for the, the, let's say, the Garden Club. But in this situation, and this is very timely now, uh, even though this is before the Trump administration, this happened in the Obama administration. Uh, there we had 40 lawyers at the border in Texas at the request of the Justice Department. The United States Justice Department was paying the American Bar Association to have these lawyers at the border to help unaccompanied minors in in their, um, uh, their hearings at, at immigration court. So it seemed very odd to us that the American Bar, that the American Bar Association's lawyers were being targeted in this way when they were doing uh, public service at the request of a different branch of government. Uh, we were unable to get the Department of Education to change uh, their mind, and this was this was just the most bait and switch kind of pull the rug out from under people who had been doing such wonderful work on behalf of the public for so many years that we filed a lawsuit and cuz that's what lawyers is, do that's right. for
1: the, for the good of it, not just for the good of the individual but sometimes for the good of many and that's right. what it sounds like with this one Yeah. so, yes. so it was
2: not only the American Bar Association but several people there uh, one of the lawyers worked for the disabled veterans association and at one job with the disabled Vietnam veterans, he was told that he didn't qualify, but with another job, I believe it was with a different disabled veterans organization, he told he was told he was. So it made absolutely no sense when the lawyer was doing the same type of public service work. Uh, that case was filed during the Obama administration. It was handled in the Trump administration, and we're waiting for a ruling now.
1: And what, what court is that? In? It's
2: pending in the Federal District Court in Washington,
1: D.C. Okay. So we'll be on the look for that, and we'll update when we when we when we get that information. There's because- one
2: important thing I I want to say. If you are a, a young person in graduate school relying on public service loan forgiveness, or think that you can rely on public service loan forgiveness, I cannot advise you to rely on it, because even if the people who are in this group uh, is given the relief that they deserve, because they had been told that their loan was going to be forgiven, and most of them have letters saying so. Uh, new people, not so much. Even the Obama administration thought that the cost of public service loan forgiveness was just too great, and recommended zeroing it out. So we're not sure about the future of public service loan forgiveness. You know, it's
1: interesting. You know, and I didn't plan that. By literally, like three days ago, there's a young lawyer I know from um, a program I was in, and. She does public service work and she reached out to me because she's looking at a change and we were, she was trying to tell me all the things that she would be open to doing and she does incredible. I don't want to identify work, but we were talking about how critical for her this loan is. Um, and when you see, you know, I, and I start thinking about all the things that can happen, you know, you think you're in an okay economic position. For instance, you think I can hire a lawyer, but then a flood happens or, um a devastating event, and your life goes upside down, and you do need a lawyer to help you. Um, with every disaster, I know, you know, when going through loans, I did some volunteer work after Katrina and I went down there, and you could see I was literally at the library helping people fill out their paperwork. And it literally, I was a lawyer and I was even having trouble, you know, figuring out the paperwork. So it it is. A form of service that I think a lot of people don't realize how critical it is, and until you're going through a crisis or someone you know is going through a crisis, and you and you just can't afford counsel, um, you know, and then that loops back around to the high costs, which it's not just law but medicine, as you mentioned, or any um, professional um, pursuit, how expensive it is, and how difficult it is to pay. Um, to be able to give back. Um,
2: Yes, that's exactly true. The American Bar Association is working to save public service loan forgiveness, and you can call your representative or your senators and tell them to save public service loan forgiveness. In terms of... What you see, because you have an interesting
1: perspective now, you know, having been president of the American Bar Association and being a pioneer for women lawyers. What do you, you know, beyond, there's a lot of legal issues that are out there. But where are you shifting to now with the majority of your energy um, as the world changes rapidly before our eyes, you know, with each administration, things change. Um, There's so much conflict and so much discussion about law um, on every level, and we've talked about a lot of these topics here, whether it's from Me Too to police misconduct to the privatization of um, incarceration and probation, um, there's it's almost ricocheting at how many legal issues and, and how much the average person needs to actually have some basic knowledge of law. Um, what do you where Where are you going now in terms of where you're wanting to put your time, with all your background? of the above,
2: all of the above. So access to justice has always been my mantra. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, what we haven't talked about is how much work that I think needs to be done by every citizen protecting the rule of law. Uh, as ABA president, I wrote rule of law letters to ten countries. Uh, talking about threats to the rule of law in their country. So let's talk a little bit about what does that mean? What does that mean? When you're saying rule of law and that some
1: and that every person, non-lawyer and lawyer alike need to be connected to, what
2: are you trying to What are what are folks needing to do? So most of us if you're over 50 had some civics education in 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 uh, high school, maybe even before that. And the State Bar of Georgia and lots of other state bars work very hard to try to bring some form of civics education to schools. But the bottom line is we need to realize when people talk about constitution, their constitutional rights, that's the rule of law. So when we think about it, we know there are three branches of government the executive branch, which is the president, the legislative branch, which is the Congress, and the judicial branch, which are the courts. And those three branches act on a check and balance on each other. So the president is popularly elected in a party, and the legislature is popularly elected. And while we elect judges in Georgia, federal judges are not elected. But the point is, is the judge has to uh, protect the rule, the 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 rights of the minorities, and I don't mean minority people necessarily, uh, but everyone certainly <laughs> is protected against the will of the majority. So if you're accused of a crime, you want to know that you're going to have a fair and impartial judge and jury that are going to decide whether or not you're guilty of that crime. And if you're a business, Let's say you're a doctor accused of medical malpractice. You want to know that there is a fair and impartial judge and jury that's there. You don't want to know that if the governor uh, controlled the the judges to such an extent that that if the governor didn't like you, he could tell the judge to rule against you and unfortunately that's what's been happening more and more throughout the world you hear about things called authoritarian regimes where somebody like a dictator has control over the entire government that's not the purpose and as all Americans we need to be very watchful of that not only in our country but certainly all over the world and and even in
1: your local base you know in different states or different ways i mean we you know in georgia Obviously, I'm the most familiar with that. You know, we have elected judges. I know my neighbors always say to me, who do I vote for for judge? I'll just trust you. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a lot of different things about their backgrounds, um, their judicial philosophy. But, you know, what you're bringing about is the onus on us as citizens to ask questions um, and to ensure that the media also covers those races. Um, I know even with the local elections um in Georgia recently, I was looking for election results at night, and I could not get them on the uh, newspaper website. I had to go to the um, Secretary of State's office. You know, and, and in other states, even if they some states are just pure appointment, there's still this responsibility of knowing, then who in the legislature or who in the governor's office are selecting those judges and what is going behind their reasoning um, as to who to
2: select? Well, elections have consequences. Right now, we're talking about um, a new U.S. Supreme Court judge and partisan people have lined up on either end. But the point is, is that elections have consequences. You, When when you have uh, in the situation, the federal bench, the, the president of the United States, makes a nomination and the Senate confirms or doesn't confirm. Most of the time the Senate confirms. On a state level, you mentioned that in this state, the governor tends to appoint and then that person tends to be reelected. But our judges in Georgia run nonpartisan without a a party label. That's not so true in other states where they run, when they run for reelection, they run with a party label. But one way to get informed is uh, we have a on the American Bar Association website, uh, I was president of the ABA after the so-called judge remark. And I asked the group to put together a- Wait, what's the judge remark? The so-called judge remark? Yeah, the so-called judge remark. Uh, Without getting too political, um, the president of the United States uh, referred to a judge that ruled in a way that he didn't like as a so-called judge. Uh. And there are no such thing as so-called judges. There are judges and they are fair and impartial. We expect them to be fair and impartial. So we put together a little webinar that anybody can take a look at. I'll give you the web address. It's ambar, like American Bar, A-M-B-A-R dot O-R-G, slash protectourjudiciary. And it'll run you through a little webinar that explains Uh, Not only how the third branch works, but judges can't defend themselves because they're ethically prohibited from doing that. So it's every citizen's responsibility to defend the integrity of the third branch as part of that check and balance on the other two branches.
1: And that's what I appreciate. You know, law is not perfect. The courts are not perfect. And sometimes I like what the ruling, sometimes I don't. But I have to say, Doing this 31 years now, I at least always feel like I have a chance. I feel I, for the most part, I feel like, and in turn, my client feels like I get a chance of voice. And so to hear that the ABA is pushing and making sure that um, people realize this is the branch of government where you also get a voice, it's not just the vote. Um, there are people looking out for you and trying to um, figure out what
2: is just and fair. Well, we talked about diversity a, a little bit ago, and diversity on the bench is very important because when someone comes to court, they'd like to see a judge that looks like they do. And that the judge, because you know, a judge learns the law, but the
1: judge has life experience. And Having, you know, for instance, you know, on a Supreme Court or a Court of Appeals, a host of people from different backgrounds and different ways of looking at things only enhances the debate and creates more fairness. So thank you so much for sharing, for your passionate work. And as all my listeners know, I pick a particular tea and we have been enjoying, um, A green tea with lemongrass. And lemongrass is a um, herb that promotes strength. And it's your personal strength from. Being a young lawyer, becoming a partner, I know when I met you, I was like, wow, you know, she's like big in this firm and you, you just, you don't have those ideas, you know,
0: you,
1: you have a passion for something, but you don't know how it falls out. And then to think that you then became the first woman president of the Georgia Bar, the strength that took, and then to go on to be president of all the lawyers in the United States um, and take on those roles, that takes strength and commitment And so that's why I invited you to join with me for a cup of tea. So thank you. Thank you. It's been lovely. I appreciate it. And I will post um, that web address as well up on Twitter and some other things. So if y'all listen to this podcast, go take that webinar from the ABA. Thanks,
2: Linda. Thank you.
0: This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's LOL Talk with BJ Music theme written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire.